The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. It's an old problem. Those things in dusty glass cases in museums, who do they really belong to? Are UK museums the best places to keep the cultural treasures of other cultures? Especially when we stole them in the first place. And when we can't even keep those treasures safe. Are we too fixated on objects and not enough on who made them and why? Is it time to have a museum rethink? That's this week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, yeah, 2,000 items. Yes, according this is to, the British Museum. Yeah, George Osborne, who is the chairman of the mm. British Museum. Yes. Uh, he said, shouldn't know. He shouldn't. Well, he Former should be able chancellor. To keep, exactly. He would have thought he'd keep a handle on things. Mm. Uh, well, he reckons 2,000 items have been yeah. stolen. Part yeah, of the yeah. problem is that they just didn't catalogue them. Well, and, I, and you've got the Greeks who have issues with some of the things the British Museum's got anyway. Yeah. The Parthenon and the Egyptians. Marbles, and the Egyptians. And the Chinese now all saying, hang on a second. Mm. You know, your argument was... You can keep these things safe. You obviously can't. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we did get the, you know, we did snaffle them, didn't we? we did. You know, the Elgin marbles, you know, the Elgin. Well, they were bought, technically. We call them the Parthenon think, marbles these days, by the way. Oh, do we? Just right, Because yes. it's not because, okay, because Elgin was the guy who basically mm. raffled, snaffled well, he, them. He, he kind of got them off the Ottoman authorities, but yes. Right. But no, I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the idea that a lot of the stuff that's in our museum, not just the British Museum, but lots of other museums too, is actually stuff that we walked in and took by military force yeah. um, or other forms of uh, you know, obligation, uh, and we shouldn't have done. And, and is there a sense in which that shouldn't be there? But, but then overall, do you then take all foreign objects out of all museums? Is that the way it needs to go? Or what about the, the Benin bronzes, which have now many of whom have gone back to uh, yeah. to, to Benin, to, to Nigeria, where they came from, Benin City. Is that where well, you start re- 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 um, re- repatriating some of this stuff? But then all the stuff that, that people, school children might want to look at isn't there. Yeah. Unless they go to Nigeria, I suppose. Perhaps they should. It's a very difficult... Well, that's, that's the question. I mean, maybe museums should just reflect the country that they are in. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and we've got a rich history in the so UK. So no we should, we should English be... things in Scottish museums, no Scottish things in English museums. <laughs> well, I mean, where, how I far mean, do you go? Well, I mean, well, you go to Scotland if you want to see the Scottish mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I'm sure Scotland would would agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, come come up to Scotland and experience our culture, including our various artefacts. But there's also the question about, do you actually need to see the originals as well? Ah. You know, can in this day and age where I've got 3D printing and all that sort of stuff, can we just create, you know, replicas that are believable? I mean, at the end of the day, okay, so you're seeing the actual original thing, but does it really matter? What's more well, important but people is get no people get a thing of that, don't they? I mean, you, you know, when you see the, I don't know, the Tutankhamun treasures when they came over, and they mm. they are in Egypt where they should be, mm. but when they came over, it was huge. Got crowds going all over London trying to get to see them. Well, there's another thing then. So maybe you sort of like tour these things, you know. Mm. So if you want to see the original insurance costs are quite something mind but yeah but i'm sure the insurance costs of keeping this stuff even more so now mm. at the uh, british yes. museum well. given that half the you know half the stuff but two thousand items has disappeared well so there's you know so there's all of that question isn't there so but, where do you keep things safe well that's I the question you, I really yeah, well, I, well yeah like for example your own stuff how do you keep that safe well wigmore associates not exactly a uh, a national monument themselves but well, they haven't been declared one not yet, yet not no, yet. just a question of time i guess uh but uh well, well we don't want them locked up in a museum no. 
no, 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 we, no, no. we want them busy working on managing the wealth of their customers, developing the best portfolio of investments that they can muster, providing advice on how you're going to minimize tax and to ensure that you've got enough money for a comfortable retirement so you can travel the world and see all of these great yes, things yes. In, that have all been in, repatriated. In where they should to, be, yes. Exactly. Uh, and also to have your wealth passed on to you know your family's next mm. generation. So that sounds like the sort of help that you could do with. Give them a call, Wigmore Associates, 020-7224-3400, or visit wigmore-associates.co.uk. They are proud supporters of the Y-Curve yep. and not at all prehistoric. Not at all. Very but, much of our time. But let's talk to someone who deals in the prehistoric and more recent stuff, and he is Dan Hicks, Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at Oxford University and Curator of World Archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, and he joins us now. So, so Dan, I mean, it's a bit of an old-fashioned notion, isn't it? Sort of gathering relics from countries you've marched into in, in history and you know, perhaps now is the time that there should be a bit of an amnesty, perhaps. Should, should we sort of start offering some of these relics back to the countries that they belonged in? Well, absolutely. And so we're, uh, we're seeing, I think, a, you know, new phase of uh, looking at our museums and maybe once in a, a generation, it's, you know, something that happened, uh, that happens. And so maybe 25 years ago, we were thinking about exhibitionary practice you know, how do we ensure, you know, public access to museums, you know, those issues over the museum as an educator, having its educational function. You know, now maybe we're thinking of these institutions also as archives, as uh, research or, you know, knowledge institutions. So attention is really, you know, turning to what's hidden away, not on public display, but in terms of the British Museum, for example, the 99% of objects that are hidden away and are warehoused and often haven't been you know, looked at for hundreds of years. So certainly I think... Now that's that's, that's, a pretty, yeah. just, that, that's an extraordinary statistic. Let's hold with that for a second. Yeah. 99% of what the U British Museum holds is not on display. Absolutely. And so that's the case for most museums, although the BM is, you know, uh, there's obviously, a, uh, you know, as a public institution, as a national institution, is uh, one where this issue is one that, you know, focuses the mind. The, uh, the BM has... You know, maybe it's any 1.80,000 or so objects on display out of 8 million or and so. And George Osborne has said out of out of those that aren't on display, well, maybe including the ones that are on display, there's just, you know, they're not fully catalogued. So we actually, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of items, but we do we actually know what they all are? We don't know what they all are. And I think this is something for those of us that work in the sector that came yeah, uh, sort of into you know, into consciousness maybe 20 years ago with the conversation over human remains, which, you know, remains open at this point. We, you know, had a review in the UK into, you know, objects that were taken under colonialism often that, that were, you know, parts of humans, you know, bone, hair, skin, and so forth. And we ended that process without any firm numbers, we're now seeing or, you know, realising again that we don't even have the numbers for the art objects or the cultural objects as well. And is that true for, for all museums? I mean, you, you're a curator of, of part of the Pitt Rivers Museum. Yeah, right, yeah. uh, and, and would you say the same thing is true there? No. So I think our university museums actually are in a very different position. I think in the UK, if we think about our museums falling into a number of different categories, we've got the national museums, and we have the university museums. We, of course, importantly, have the city and the regional museums as well. And each of those is in a different, 
you know, category in terms of where we are. Obviously, as well as that, there are regimental museums, you know, there are art museums that are run on a private basis. You know, art museums often haven't got as many objects because they're individual, you know, paintings or whatever. But if we think about the city museums first, certainly, you know, the great you know, world culture collections of the Ipswiches or the Bristols or the Birminghams. Actually, we just don't know what's in the collections there. And we're talking 40 or more or sort of such institutions across the country. Uh, we then have our national museums. And, the, and then importantly, we have uh, university museums where over the years, you know, in part because of a combination over the past hundred years of maybe, you know, lack of funding, maybe even lack of vision. The focus of those institutions, and certainly, I mean, when I, yeah, I've worked at the Pitt Rivers now for a little over 16 years. I mean, I was amazingly lucky to come into an institution where for, you know, generations, the basic work of the listing of objects and the putting of them on a database have been done. That hasn't been the focus of these other institutions. So I think we need to see this, mm. you know, complex, you know, landscape of objects, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the, yeah, that we don't see, of course, we don't see them in terms of if we you know go to a a gallery or a museum you know these things aren't available to be seen on a day-to-day -day basis but actually yeah. why well, that is the question is you've got a whole you've got a whole load of objects and you don't know what they are or where they came from and they're stored away and no one's seeing them i mean the obvious question is what is the point so a part of the point of course is to put them onto a database and to make them available so at least we know what we have and so, mm. the, and so for the, uh, the British Museum, and so, and so we've already heard that only 1% is on display, 99% is, you know, warehoused, but only 50% of the 8 million objects are even on the database that's available on their website. And that, for many in the sector, and certainly for many, you know, listening to this, will be, uh, you know, a really amazing figure. How can we be said to be looking after objects when we don't even have an accurate list of what we have? Or even, a, you know, 99% of the objects on a list, maybe, or something like that. So no list in any data, you know, no database is ever complete. And, and presumably a lot of these objects can be used for research purposes as well. So you're talking, yeah, I mean, you're it's talking, not just people seeing them in class cases. People who are, I don't know, studying 8th century Cambodian art would actually know to where they can find it. And you're talking about human remains as well. You know, that, you know, though I'm sure there's a lot of scientific purposes that those could be put to as well. And so I think we're, uh, we're seeing in, in terms of you know, the research value or the knowledge that's held in, the, in these museums, you know, and in these objects, really two uh, 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 kinds of knowledge. We're certainly, as you say, we're seeing the knowledge about the cultures who, who made these objects or the individuals who lived, whose uh, remains are there in the museum, where also, though, importantly, and maybe half of the conversation, half of the history here is about how they got there. So there's this other layer to museum objects, which is, well, how did they come to end up in the museum in the first place? And, you know, what has been their history of either, of either you know, simply, you know, lying in a box for 100 or 150 years or, you know, other things that have happened to them over that time. So I think it's that you know, layering of history that we see in the collections, that is why we need to, you know, have this conversation, but also why it's so important not only to care for the collections by making lists, but also maybe to, to see our museums in part as archives or libraries, where research is not only something undertaken by the curators, but is something under, you know, that can be undertaken by, you know, researchers or members of the public or 
Of course, importantly, those who come from the communities from which objects were taken historically. Well, that was kind of where yeah. we, I was going to go next, because the point is all this stuff, some of it, I guess, comes from within the UK. A, a basic first principles, and I guess that's what we have to get back to, should things that come from other cultures, whether looted or bought, should they be the bedrock of our museums does that make any sense particularly if you know that you, you know you're touching on the whole research aspect i mean you can't research uh, things out of context i mean if you've got a grab bag of all sorts of different relics then you know what are you researching but if you've got things which are from the same area similar history uh, then you can you can build each item obviously is building on the research uh, that's associated with everything else and that would make sense then that it should be back in its context it should be back in its country of origin so absolutely i mean of course i mean we you know we have heard from uh, museums that you know that the museum itself you know represents a context and i do think there's some you know value in that argument Certainly no one in this conversation is making the argument that absolutely everything needs to return to where it was originally made or where it originally came from. I mean, that, you know, to try to unpick the whole history of, uh, of you know, museums, of objects, I mean, that would, that would, that, 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 yeah, that is something that absolutely no one is arguing for. Well, Instead, well you, say, you say no one's arguing that, but, but there is a, mm. if there's a principle that the things mm. that belong to a culture belong in that place where they came from well, if that's yeah, I don't a principle. think there is i don't think ah, there is okay. such a principle so, so the benin bronzes needn't have gone back to benin for that no, reason there is because the difference uh, there's a there's a crucial difference there which is there is a long-standing request one might even say a you know demand for the return of those objects so when there is you know this is case by case we you know so in our museums over the over, over the past 30 years i mean i'm old enough to remember in the 90s, the conversations over restitution in, in, in relation to two other very different historical contexts, the very different context of Holocaust loot uh, being returned, and when there were you know, uh, demands made by the descendants of those from whom objects were taken in between 1933 and 1945, uh, that was at one point you know, controversial, but it was something for which here in the UK we you know changed the law, and you know that happened across the world. There's also the other context, of course, of, of uh, the return of ancestral human remains, which again is a very normal part of our work in museums. So this is you know this is you know not in those cases about sending back things that aren't you know from the UK. It's about an openness when there is an ethical, a moral, a legal argument that these objects should not be there, when there's a request from, you know, from, you know, somebody from a nation, uh, from, from, uh, from a group, from, from another museum or, or whatever, for that item to be returned, we need to be able to take that on a case-by-case -case basis sort of seriously. So now what we're seeing is that those arguments, you know, it absolutely makes no sense to say that, we, that, we're, that we're unable to do art restitution you know, at all under any circumstances, or indeed that everything has to go back either, big, big, because we know about how to do restitution, because in these other very different cases, we've been you know, doing it for years. We are simply, you know, you know, opening up the methods and the processes, which, you know, which are long tested, you know, tried and tested approaches, we're opening them up to say African objects, art objects, and so on.
So I guess it, at the end of the day, it's what's the best place for these items for, for example, the, the ability for them to be used in research, but also their own their own safety as well. So there's no point if somebody asks for a return of an item uh, for it to be returned, if it's going to find itself in a in a war zone, because obviously... Well, that-, that was, <laughs> I mean, that was one of the arguments that was put, but I think that argument... You know, the idea that you, you know, you know, if we look at those objects that were taken with violence, that were obviously thefts, that were, in the case of the Benin bronzes, were a chaotic, you know, free-for-all in which maybe 200 soldiers and sailors and administrators in the aftermath of the sacking of uh, Benin City in 1897, you know, simply, you know, took what they uh, could for personal you know, gain and then sold them on the open market. Some ended up in museums in, you know, weeks and some took, you know, decades to find their way into museums. A lot actually uh, remain in the private collections of the descendants of the soldiers who were involved. In those cases, of course, we're not talking about, oh, we're not going to return an object because it might not be safe. Because, of course, it was perfectly safe for hundreds of years in Benin City before, you know, the naval attack. I mean, the, the, for all those things you're talking about, though, Dan, the, the, for example, in Mosul in Iraq. Now, I, I, visited, I was lucky enough to visit Mosul Museum some time back. And the amazing objects, things coming from Nineveh and that kind of thing which were not looted, some were, some were taken back to Britain, some are in the, um, in the British Museum, in fact, from that area. Some remained in the Mosul Museum and were destroyed by ISIS uh, in the 2000s, uh, late 2000s, um, 2013, 2014. Some people might point to that and say, hang on a second, that is what we're talking about. That's what really matters. Things that are completely wantonly destroyed because these places are not stable. And whatever you might say about the British Museum, certainly at the moment, it looks like Britain's polity is stable. Well, we were told, of course, that, you know, as early as the, you know, 1960s, in the wake of the year of Africa, when there was, uh, you know, the, you know, all of these independent uh, nations uh, you know, across the continent of Africa, the idea or the, the risk as it was seen by civil servants and uh, museum directors in, mm. you know, Germany and France and the UK, you know, there was a worry that there would be a demand for certain objects to be returned. So a series of myths were invented at that point, and we've heard some of them in the uh, the question in the line of questioning so far. The idea mm-hmm. that if you return an item, it might be sold off on the open market. If you return an item, there might be a war and it might be destroyed. Uh, you return an item and it won't be on a proper database, so it won't really be looked after. It'll be hidden away. It won't be seen by many people. It, you know, in reality, all of those things that might happen if you return objects, uh, you know, as I showed in my book uh, about the you know, about the Benin bronzes, um, you know, actually have happened to Benin bronzes here in the UK. So there are examples in the Second World War of Nazi bombs that fell on on the yeah, whole museum and on Liverpool Museum and destroyed Benin bronzes, the remains of which you can see in the collections today. As I showed in the British Museum's there, there are examples as uh, recently as 1970s that some of the Benin bronzes were sold off from the British Museum's collections, you know, actually on the open market. And that list, and here, here we are at this moment in, in 2023, where the final line of argument that, oh, they're safer because they're on a, you know, they're on a database and they could be seen by the world. Well, actually, 
you know, you know, under a hundred of the, the over nine hundred objects from the Benin expedition that you know, you know, you know that are held in the British Museum or on display. We've only recently had a full list for those objects, and of course, as we've seen from the news, there isn't a proper list, and actually, artifacts have been sold off and you know, subject to theft. So, so in reality, this is what museums, you know, museums are always subject to these risks wherever in the world you go. But the sort of, you know, moral high ground or the exceptionalism that has been put forward, you know, increasingly, you know, actually in an increasingly parochial, marginal way from Westminster and from London, you know, around the world objects, including Ben and Bronzes are being returned. You know, we have the government of, uh, of uh, France, you know, the Macron report that came out in 2017, opening up, you know, returns to across the continent of Africa. We see the Germans, you know, returning across the federal museums, you know, the items from, from, you know, from the Benin no, Bronzes. We've, we've seen more and more of the 160 or so institutions that are holding the Benin bronzes, actually make it, having their own conversation and making their own decision. That includes the University of Oxford, the University of Cambridge, the Horniman Museum in London. It includes a, a whole host of North American institutions now as well. So those arguments were already pretty tired. And then the most recent uh, news that's just exposed what we all knew about the British Museum, that there isn't you know, actually an, an adequate list and these objects are as, you know, okay, not you know, necessarily as open to theft as in other institutions, but you know, there certainly isn't, you know, isn't a moral high well, ground anymore there. Talking of yeah. moral high ground, I mean, we, one thing we haven't mentioned in all this, which is perhaps one of the key issues for the longest time, is the Parthenon marbles, previously known as the Elgin mm. marbles. Actually, where do you stand on the whole issue of whether they should be returned? So again, I think it's another one of these actually, you know, these issues that are incredibly important for many people they don't involve all that many objects uh they have been you know you know they're iconic of you know this historic relationship at the height of colonialism in the later 19th century of the of the relationships in between empire and theft obviously these are an earlier you know, an earlier set of, of objects that were taken right at the, you know, the early years of the 19th century. But in the later 19th century, they came to represent, you know, another iconic example of how, you know, world culture somehow ought to be in London or, or, or you know, Berlin or, you know, New York or wherever. So absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this is an example where there is a demand. It's been, you know, it's been, you know, made over the years. It was made, I think, I mean, most recently, sort of most obviously and most explicitly in advance of the Athens Olympics. Uh, there was a knockback then, 20 years ago, to say, no, we're not going to return them. But, you know, the moral argument and the ethical argument, you know, hasn't been made really, I think, successfully. And so, of course, the part of the marble should be returned. Of course, I mean, that's just, that's just obvious. Okay. And there's a place to put them, which is the other point. There's a, a, an amazing museum Absolutely. in Athens. Absolutely. There is a whole new, you know, genre, in fact, of a museum that's being built across the continent of Africa. We see one in Athens, you know, of the receiving museum, these incredibly sort of hopeful, forward-looking museums that are looking forward to the return of objects that are so important and that have an audience. So, so I think, I mean, that, 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 that sits in, you know, in an interesting contrast with the very backward looking, you know, model of the commissar curator that we have seen associated with the British Museum. So all of us want, you know, the British Museum and the VNA, our national museums, our university museums, our city museums, we want them to be offering leadership. You know, we want them to be the best in the world, but that's, 
you know, doesn't mean that we have to hold on to this historic relationship. The way in which museums were co-opted for a period of their history in between, let's say, 1870 and 1920 or so, to becoming these, you know, vehicles for an ideology of, you know, dispossession of sort of cultural supremacy. I mean, that has no that has yeah you know, that bears no relationship to what the British Museum. But it puts it, about and it today. puts it puts the you know it puts museums, British museums generally, into in an awkward situation if it, if they are perceived as these are relics of the colonial era. These are you know, s- symbolic gestures to you know life as it was. Mm. Now we 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 all want to you know appreciate mm. history. But if we're saying, well, yes, look, here's a whole load of stuff that we've nicked from around the world as part of our colonial past, that's almost like saying, you know, we, we're, we're proud of that and we're hanging on to that or, bit of or, history. Or is conversely, are, we, are the fact that we're not, we don't like that now, just a reflection of our current cultural cringe towards any memory of imperialism? Are we actually as, as much victims of a, of a cultural move as they well, were? I think, then? I mean, the ultimate in, you know, cancel culture, surely, is, you know, hiding away objects in the, you know, in the archive and not letting anyone know what you've got. You know, of course there are. I mean, as we learn from world culture museums around the world, of course these are full of incredibly uncomfortable histories. I mean, look at the Morton Craniological Collection at the University of uh, uh, Penn, Pennsylvania in uh, North America. You know, there's a U.S. institution that has over a thousand human remains that includes the human remains of enslaved people that were, you know, dug up in order to be put in the collection. You know, the openness about what's in the collection, though, has to come first. And, okay, these are the, the, these are these are awful histories. These are part of the histories of, of our museums. And there are campaigns to see reburial and to have a conversation about what happens with them. We can't resist those conversations. We don't know where they lead, you know, and it has to be case by case in terms of, you know, what the right outcome is. But to think that we can just hold the line, that we can just hold on to our museums, I can't think of any other you know part of our society or culture whether we think about uh, about healthcare, whether we think about the criminal justice system whether we think about you know business where you know if something's hurting people if something is you know, widely perceived to be something that we have to talk about big, 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 because it might be you know upsetting for people or hurtful that we wouldn't actually have a conversation about, well, maybe we've been doing this for 150 years, but maybe actually we can change and maybe we can do something different and we can can make our institutions fit for our times. Something about museums opens them up to this, you know, misperception that they're about the past. Of course, they're about the present. Of course, they're about, you know, what is right in terms of what we want from our, you know, cultural institutions Mm. in the present. So, so of course, we can change how we do things. Of course, object, you know, a museum doesn't have to be a one-way street. It doesn't have to be a prison cell. It can be... And on the... Yeah. Aren't there three things that, uh, and you might have more, but I mean, in my my thinking, there's three things that museums are there for. One is they are a repository because, you know, old stuff has got to go yeah, it's somewhere. it's the archive part. Yeah, the, and whether that's here or where it's overseas, that I mean, that doesn't matter. The, the second part is, which we've touched on, is the, the research component of it. So we might be able to tell more in the future uh, about history by analysing some of these uh, some of these mm-hmm. things. And then the other one, which is, you know, what, how most of us interact with, with museums, is for education 
education and dare I say yeah. entertainment as well. Sure. You know, it's, it's a day out. School parties going around won't be able to see the Elgin Marbles if they're back in Athens. Do they need to see the Elgin Marbles? Is it just the education process of it? In these, this, this day and age where we can have replicas, do we actually need to, you know, it's it's really just having relevant stuff that tells a story. Yeah. A virtual museum. A virtual, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, in, in, you're there, but you know, in this, you know, maybe it's all printed out using, you well, know, modern still technology. Virtual. Exactly. But also they're not short of marbles. I mean, let's be very clear about this. I mean, if you go, you know, walk into the Ashmolean Museum in the University of Oxford, the first thing you see on your left and your right are the Arundel and uh, Townley marbles taken under, you know, circumstances that you might, you know, look at in a different way today, but from a site that's now in modern Turkey, from which there is not a demand for those items to be returned. And, you know, go into the storerooms of the British Museum, there is no end of classical sculpture waiting to be displayed. How much more interesting, if there is a demand, if there's a museum that's been built, you know, actually to turn the frieze outwards again. I mean, in the British Museum, you know, one of the things that I think is most evocative about these arguments are that the marble, you know, is that the display you know, that you know, originally was, a, was sort of looking out from the site, looks inward onto the, onto the room. And that inward looking approach that, oh, this is, you know, this is the, you know, this is the only, you know, we're just going to have a conversation with ourselves about this. And it's only about our visitors. What about actually, you know, giving them back on a, you know, on a completely unconditional basis and then filling up that space with some of the many other objects yeah. that haven't seen the light of day in the 200 years and, that those objects have been in the British Museum? And giving, Why not? And giving, what's, what's giving context as well, because, I mean, you know, yeah. I still feel like going to a lot of museums, they are just a, a collection yeah, things of in, in glass. And then you look at what's done, been done really well. You go and see the Mary Rose uh, yeah. Museum, where it's sort of, you know, you've got an exhibit which is completely bought to life. Uh, and it's it's just overwhelming that that experience. And the French don't want Absolutely. it, even though they tried to take it. <laughs> the French <laughs> have given right. up I mean, the struggle on that one. Such an interesting mm. uh, uh, you know example because I think so often it is the smaller museums. Uh, yeah, many of us will will have those museums that mm. we you know that we love. You know, that are in the cities or the towns you know that we that we know or that we live in. Where often actually they're the institutions that think about community stakeholders you know audiences in a you know much more human way than maybe our national museums have done on this kind of 18th century model of encyclopedic or universal museums and of course we know with the British Museum it's an encyclopedia that doesn't even have an index and what good is an encyclopedia without an index so so ultimately yeah I think the more human I mean what we're seeing really part of this conversation is a more human approach you know to museums but 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 the process Mm. you say there is a process but I mean in general I mean we all know processes that aren't really processes is stuff really going to start going back you been in bronzes yes is there much more that you think will or should end up back where it came from? And and also just related to that, what does the public want to see? So you made yeah. the, you made the point that you know people come to come to Britain and expect to see a lot of this stuff because it's a world centre for for a lot of uh, these exhibits. But I mean, is that going to change over time? Should it change? And, and should it change? Yeah, should should people be going to Brit- British museums to hear about British Brit- history? Uh, and uh, you know, and some of this is related to British history, and some of it's uncomfortable British history. But you don't need to see the stuff that uh, has been taken to to tell that story. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I certainly don't think. I mean, I don't, 
again, I'm, I'm not sure I've heard anyone making the sort of ultra nativist or nationalist argument that the British Museum should only, you know, have objects, you know, from, you know, Britain in it. Uh, and of course, how on earth would that would that work? Because as we've already said, there are eight million objects in total in the collections. Uh, and mm. I mean, where would they go? There's no one asking for, you know, for the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of those objects are not subject to demands for returns so the idea that we're going to somehow you know run out of stuff is a very odd one how many objects are we talking about that are on you know that are hidden away in warehouses across the country if we count up you know the city museums and the regional museums the university museums and our national museums the regimental museums i mean we're talking you know tens of millions certainly i don't know maybe over 100 million we don't have the numbers that's part of the point we don't know Mm. Um, but then, so but then you're saying it's stuff. What, what people really want to come and see, what people want to really come and see are the big things. The, I mean, the Elgin Marbles is one example. They, they're not coming to see little heads of some uh, half uh, classical statuette that no one really knows where it was. I mean, there are big, big name things that people want to see. And we'll go to Benin, I suppose, to see them if they must. But they can come to London perhaps more easily to see these. But things. again, let's not see that restitution is simply about some, you know, focus purely on the physical location of objects. So certainly, I mean, I don't know, you know, where the restitution, you know, conversations uh, within Nigeria will go in terms of where these objects should be, you know, physically. The restitution commitments made by the Germans, you know, made by some of of the other individual institutions that I've mentioned have been about about ownership and about the decision making. Who decides where of course in these cases not only artworks or you know property but actually ancestral objects these are objects of you know religion these are objects of uh, sovereignty this you know these objects that relate to you know living monarchies so they're incredibly you know culturally important but of course you know the uh, okay you hand over the decision making about about where objects should be that certainly doesn't mean that the objects won't be on loan you know to the british museum or to the university of oxford or wherever that 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 simply won't be my decision or the decision of anybody in my position it will be a decision made by the rightful owners and i think that that's absolutely right so so it isn't that restitution is a you know a loss for the western institutions in many ways what it does is it is it open? It's all about what happens next. It's all it's all about the cultural exchanges that can happen next. But that that does not mean that we sort of loan objects back rather than giving them back. It's seeking to create a more equitable, you know, set of conversations over you know where things should should be in those small number of cases relative to what's in museums where objects really were, you know, the subject of theft. And imagine you know. Yeah, imagine you're in any other sector where there was such a reputational disaster, where every time people walk into a World Culture Museum, the question is not, wow, you, you know, look at these objects, but actually, you know, where did it come from? And is there someone somewhere asking for it back? So for many of us in the sector, this is actually rather what's happening in, you know, mm-hmm. you know in the fashion retail sector. So think about if, you know, so often these days, if you walk into a clothes shop and you know you see a t-shirt or a pair of trainers the conversation for the consumer is not purely wow isn't that cool yeah doesn't it look good but also well, well, it's which, well actually, which under, what, exactly, under what conditions yeah. was it made how did it get here yeah. so that ethical yeah. consumption that we see in you know in the fashion world and in other parts of our economy mm. we're now seeing in terms of how people approach culture and i think that's just so, a, right. that's a change in our audiences that's not a change being imposed by some bunch of woke woke curators the questions you're asked 
in the galleries, with the school visits, with the visitors, the questions have changed. So there is a generational shift in terms of what where you know what is being so that means how how exhibits are presented has to change obviously to give them context where that where it is uncomfortable because otherwise people will be forcing them out yeah uh, and uh, and also yeah i mean some of them may just have to disappear because it's not seen that they are in the right place so there's a lot of change to come i think in in your industry isn't there well there is i mean i think i mean yeah yeah look i mean no book in our sector i think has uh, dated so fast as uh, the famous book that a lot of your listeners will know, they, they certainly will know the radio show, I'm sure, Neil McGregor's you know, History of the World in 100 Objects. Even when it came out oh, only yes. 11 or 12 years ago, it was already presenting a model of curation that was long dead. The idea that there's a single, you know, lone male white fig, you know, figure, someone a bit like me, who's going to tell you the, you know, the answers to everything in the world, a history that he probably already kind of knew already without the objects, the objects, you know, simply there to illustrate it or make it sort of possible to tell the story. You know, actually, in reality, at that point, already, curation was actually co-curation. So we, we sort of make and we interpret and we make knowledge about objects in museums with other people. The expertise is shifting. The expertise actually shifts to becoming, you know, as I say, the sense of having to, you know, how do you how do you create a museum space that's as much about the you know the people in it than the objects how do you care for people as much as you care for objects that is a part of what makes our museums you know their most vibrant and when we think about the smaller museums actually they're often really doing that that's a part of the reason that we love them is they have a human dimension yeah. to them so yeah i think mm, they, yeah. the these you know these elements of how uh, you know this is this is about a shift in yeah, and ultimately, I think a very exciting shift in sort of what a museum can be. I've never felt more optimistic yeah. about art and world culture museums right now oh. than at the moment. You know, actually, you know, yeah. I mean, there, there are there are so many ways in which these institutions are changing, and we're being asked other you know, new things of us. And I think that's yeah. I mean, we have to embrace it's that and to answer the question as best we can. Well, on. On that optimistic note, I think we'll have to draw this conversation to a close. But thanks so much for being with us, Dan, and uh, giving us, well, uh, an idea, I guess, of the way that museums will be are different, the way our children will see them change, even if we don't, and perhaps fewer objects, but maybe better and in the right conditions and in the right places. Exactly. Maybe we'll even know what we have. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a start, good, wouldn't it? That would be a good, That'd be a good start, wouldn't it? Dan, yeah. thanks for being with us. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Okay, now this is the mm. point where you try and find some clever segue no, from no. talking about museums no, to no, talking no, about no. health. No, no, clever segues on a summer break. Because <laughs> you can't think of one. No. They've, we've beaten you a long Well, last. well. But anyway, next, so next week, um, yeah, we are looking at health and health. the question about how we're funding the health service. But in More to the point. Well, yeah. How much of it should just we just be looking after ourselves is the question. Well, I and ask. the reason the focus is to do with the issue of fat, right? Yeah. Fat is a Y-curve issue to bowdlerize a very old book. But it is because uh, we're talking about ways in which the government is now moving towards let's you know inject people with this new wegovi or whatever it is or or buy people fresh fruit and vegetables in order to try and make them yeah not as fat so some of that you'd say well okay buying fresh fruit and vegetables anyone could do that okay the fact that they might be too expensive for mm. people who need it well maybe yeah, that yeah, maybe yeah. that's a uh, another issue rather than uh, for the health service to sort out 
but, but I mean, but, but sneak preview. Think, Phil thinks we should just go for a run well, and not I, eat as much. I, I think people have to take some more responsibility for themselves. Mm. Uh, but I mean, there is the. I mean, the, and, and then there's the question that if we keep on spending money. Uh, mm. on more and more people become more reliant I yeah I mean I won't hold back I think in this country coming back to this country having been and seeing a health service that I think works better that paradise they call this, Australia this idea this nirvana that we have with the National Health Service that everything absolutely everything should be free at, at the, the point, point of, of entry yeah. as, I mean it's just crazy so people getting wow. uh, tablets that they can get you know that the, the health service is paying more mm. for that you could get not on prescription yeah. like headache tablets yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that yeah, you know yeah. I mean that's all just craziness well so, some, some would say fat shaming but we won't go there it's essentially a question of whether people yeah take more responsibility for themselves and uh, Phil reckons they should I am slightly more Dubious. But we'll right. be talking all about that. Yeah, and come back. Getting, it's really getting better, the best value for money out of the mm. health service, isn't it? Really, I mean, because there's and you know the subsidiary questions as well. Like there if somebody many. is you know is close to the end of their life, yeah, how long do you prolong that life for, and how much He's does it cost? He's going down that route now. <laughs> there's a lot to cover next. <laughs> he week. wants to get rid of fat people and old people, <laughs> and you'll hear all about it next week on What well, No Graham on the Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. See you next week. Bye. The Y Curve.